Well, we've been looking at the character of Daniel throughout the first five chapters of our study here uh, in Daniel. And Daniel has really demonstrated what the uncompromising character in his life and his devotion to God through the most difficult trials imaginable. Think about what's already happened in Daniel's life, right? For one thing, he was 16 and whisked away into a foreign country where he was put into the service of a pagan king. And one of the first challenges right away was what? The food challenge, right? Would you eat the same, same things as the king, right? But he would only eat vegetables, the things that God had said that he could eat, right? So he stuck to his, he would only eat kosher foods, let's put it that way. He wasn't going to eat the same things they did. Could have cost him his life, but instead God intervened, had his hand of grace upon him, and he survived. Wasn't long after that, right, in Nebuchadnezzar, right, that uh, Daniel's three friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, right, they uh, they took a stand also for the Lord, uh, much like Daniel, and could have been thrown and were thrown into the fiery furnace, but then the angel of the Lord protected them, and they survived that. Not long after that, chapter four, Daniel uh, faces the pagan king here and loses his mind. He's so proud of himself, and he has to recount and tell him what the Lord says is his judgment. Now think about that. The last people that told Nebuchadnezzar the truth got thrown into the fire, and yet Daniel stood firm and told each of them, or told the king the truth. And then Daniel chapter five, he meets another pagan king, right, Belshazzar, and he has to do the same exact thing. One more time, he has to tell him the truth. Could have cost him his life, but he is a man of uncompromising character and his and has a total devotion to God. And it doesn't matter what's going on in the world. He is singular and focused. It makes Daniel such a great study for us. Well, how does Daniel do it? I mean, you and I often struggle with the temptation to yield to the pressures of life. Take some shortcuts here and there, even bend ever so slightly with the crowd, right? Uh, it's a, just easier, isn't it, to kind of take that path of, of least resistance. It's easier to kind of go with the flow, to kind of just kind of drift along with the culture mob and then than it is to stand firm in your faith. However, let me tell you, we often kind of point to younger people in peer pressure but I don't think it gets any easier the older you get. Matter of fact, I think in some ways it actually gets a little more difficult. Uh, your responsibilities are greater. The people who are watching you and are holding you accountable are greater. When you're younger, it's really just you. When, you know, maybe your parents are kind of overseeing that, but overall, it's really just kind of you and your own little world. But you get older, you have a broader influence. And so, pressures and responsibilities are a little bit older, I mean a little bit greater. Older Christians face another temptation, that's to believe the lie. Does it really make a difference at this point in my life? I've lived for the Lord a long time. I mean, come on. If I cut a corner here or there and I just kind of go with the, the flow in society, if I quit fighting so hard, Maybe I could just kind of glide into my retirement or my final years here without having to fight so much as I've had to the rest of my life. Does it really change anything anyway? These are the lies that you have to battle as you get older. They're a little different than they are when you're younger. And, and sometimes I think they're actually a little more intense. But let's not forget, as we pick up our narrative here tonight, 
Daniel's over 80 years old. Matter of fact, I actually think he's closer to 90 years old at this point in time. He's not a young man. And how has he been able to continue to live this life of uncompromising faith to God through all of these trials? He started when he's 16. He's probably he's close to 90 now. Think about that. That's like 75 years, close to 75 years of faithfulness. Well, that's what we want to look at tonight in Daniel chapter 6, verses 12 to 18. But let's go to the Lord before we do and ask him to bless our time and his holy word. Father, once again, we come to you in prayer and we ask, Lord, that you would guide us tonight, open up our hearts and minds, as always, to your wonderful truth. Lord, direct us. about Darius the Mede, as we talked about last time. Is that really his name? Is, is he different than Cyrus? Does he have a different name? You know, I don't, I'm not going to walk you through all that again. It is my belief, just, uh, and you can argue with me later if you'd like, uh, that Darius is a title for Cyrus, and I think the evidence best supports that view of what we have anyway at this point. Now in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6, Darius supports 120 satraps. They would be like mayors, if you will, mayors of little cities and provinces. And they, remember, the Babylon Empire is massive. Okay, it, it is the largest empire in the world at that time. Uh, and it's now the Medes and the Persians. And they're the next ones. And if you can remember the statue, right? Now, 
What a tremendous statement that is about your life, isn't it? We've searched every aspect of your life, and we can't find any flaws. We can't find any specks of corruption like the rest of us, because we're, you know, these guys were, corruption is their middle name. And so once again, we see Daniel's success spurn some jealous feelings from these Babylonians. Why is this foreigner over us? And here's another king, right? We thought we went through this with Nebuchadnezzar. We thought we went through this now with Belshazzar, right? Who kind of cast him off to the side, but then brings him in at the final hour and gives him it, you know, exalted. And then this new guy, Darius, he puts him right back up where Nebuchadnezzar had him. They don't want that. We're Babylonians. Come on. Why do we want this foreigner, this guy that we enslaved, to be over us? And so these jealous men, they get together and they try to find some dirt on Daniel. And verse 4 tells us they could find nothing. There's no corruption in his life at all. What a powerful testimony from Daniel, who's 80-plus years old, close to 90 years old. We scoured your whole life. We looked at all your business affairs. We looked at all your dealings with everybody else. We can't find anything that would hint at corruption in your life. So their only recourse is the one area where they think they have any chance of bringing him down on a trumped-up charge, and that's his faith. Now, that's not because his faith is phony or hypocritical, but because it isn't. Because his faith is so genuine, they realize this is the only area they have, the only chance they have to get Daniel. So in verse 5, they decide they need to discredit Daniel through the law, through the Torah. We know that he will steadfastly be obedient to this. If we're going to trip him up, this is the one thing we can count on about Daniel is he'll be obedient to his Lord. Well, they've come up with something that they know Daniel will do in obedience to his God, but that it's contrary to Darius. So in verse 6, that these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials and the governors, we've all consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days, shall be cast into the lion's den. So notice here, you know, they've come up with their plan now. They know that they're going to trap Daniel like a vicious hunter. They've laid the trap. They're ready. They're just waiting for their prey to walk into it. And at the core of their plan is their appeal to the king's vanity. Oh, King Darius, he just drips here with the sugary greedy. Oh, King, wouldn't it be wonderful if everybody in the entire kingdom that you just took over for the next 30 days couldn't bow down to any other god but you? Wouldn't that be great? Well, the thing about flattery is it almost always works here as well, because it appeals to our own pridefulness, our own vanity, and as much as we hate to admit it, many of us fight this very same idol of the heart, this pride itself, this love to be flattered. So again, notice here, then at verse 8, now, O king, establish the injunction 
sign the document so that it may be may not be changed. This is important. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. You notice that's repeated twice in the same text. May not be changed, may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. So they proposed this edict, this, this injunction. It's pretty simple. No one's allowed to pray to any god but Darius. It'll last 30 days, but here's the trap. Anyone who violates this will be thrown into the lion's den. And these ravenous wolves know that once the king sets this in motion, Nothing, nothing can stop this. The king falls into phase one of their trap. He signs the injunction. Now, I want to skip verses 10 to 11 for now, but I'll, I promise I'll come back to those in just a couple of minutes. So we've seen the persecution. Now in verses 12 to 18, I want you to see the prosecution. Okay? He went from the persecution to the prosecution. So let's look here now at verse 12. Skipping verse 10, 11. Then, verse 12, they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man beside you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? And the king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. So we know from verses 10 to 11 that we looked at last time that Daniel prays just like he always has, but this time these evil men are waiting. And as Daniel prays, they rush to spring the trap on Daniel. And as soon as they get to see him, they head off to the king to indict Daniel for praying. Notice the sugar-coated speech once again, just dripping with the anticipation of the trap. They can hardly stand themselves. This is exactly what they planned to happen. Oh, king, did you not sign an injunction? I just want to remind you, go pray for it. They're quick to point out also that the penalty of disobedience to the king is death by being thrown into the lion's pit. The king confirms this is true. They knew he would. And he adds that according to the law of Medes and Persians, it cannot be changed. It cannot be undone. There's no way to reverse it, to change it, to alter it, to eliminate it. The injunction is decreed by the king. That's that. Verse 13. Then they answer, spring in the trap. They answered and spoke before the king. Daniel, who's one of the exiles from Judah, by the way, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you signed, but he keeps making his petition. Not once, not twice, but three times a day he does it. No sooner were the words out of the mouth, out of their mouths, when they pull the lever of the trap and report all the activities to Daniel. I'll, I'll paraphrase here again for him. This is basically what they're saying. He's ignoring you. He's going to rub it in your face, oh new king. He doesn't care what you have to say. He thinks he's a bigger He's not praying once or twice, three times a day in direct disobedience to your decree. You know what that means now, don't you, King? Hint, hint, because your injunction can never be rescinded, Daniel must be fed to the lions. They all seem giddy with excitement and 
for how well their plan has worked. They're going to get rid of this foreigner, this outsider Daniel now, once and for all. Enough of the king giving him authority over us. We're Babylonians after all. Verse 14. And as soon as the king heard the statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. Notice the king is deeply distressed. Why is the king deeply distressed? Yeah. Well, because he knows he's been played. First of all, he knows he's been played a fool by his own trusted advisors. They played off his own pridefulness, his own vanity, and got him to do something he would never have done if he hadn't been so consumed with how wonderful it was to have, would be right now. Everybody worshiping him. This whole charade was all about getting Daniel. It had nothing to do with Darius, and he understands that perfectly clearly. This never was about him. This is all about getting Daniel. I believe the king also knows that Daniel's a man of great character. Obviously, in contrast to these scoundrels. But the king sets his mind on Daniel's the kind of loyal, trusted advisor that any leader would want on their team. He's not looking to promote himself. He just wants to honor God. He just wants to honor God in everything that he does. And so the king is looking for a way out for Daniel, but it's to no avail. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians. Have you heard this before? Law to Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So these devious men are summoned by the king, but they quickly remind him, hey, the law of the Medes and Persians, law of the Medes and Persians, let's not forget, got the law of the Medes and Persians, can never be changed, never be changed, never be changed, never be changed. In case you were thinking about it, can't be changed. Often can be, never, don't ever do it. Now, you may have recalled hearing about, you may recall hearing about this, you scholars of the Bible, you, in the book of Esther. The book of Esther talks about the law of Medes and Persians. So let's look at that, shall we? The book of Esther. The book of Esther. there. It's right between Job and Nehemiah. Right, right between Job and Nehemiah. Right before Job, right after Nehemiah. You'll find the book of Esther. Here we go. Esther chapter 1. Notice here in verses 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahumim, Bistha, Armona, Bigtha, Abagath, Zethar, Archus, the seven eunuchs who were served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. 
But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And the king became very angry. So the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him. Look at verse 15. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the king, King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. And in the presence of the king and the princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by singing king saying King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence and she decided she didn't want to do it. She did not come. This day the ladies of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's conduct will speak in the same way to all the king's princes. There will be plenty of contempt and anger. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict, here we go, let this edict be issued by him and let it be written where? In the laws of Persia and Media or the so they cannot be repealed. That Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. Notice here, how often do you think the queen was to ever come into his presence again after he said this edict? Never, ever again. Once the king said it, the way they viewed it, Medes and the Persians said the king's word was infallible. And so if he said it, that's it. There was no debate. There was no changing your mind. Now, flip over in Esther to Esther chapter 8. Now here, we're a little later in the story. we got Esther and Mordecai and Haman, right? He's trying to kill all the Jewish people. So Esther chapter 8, on that day, King Ahasuerus, verse 1, gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had disclosed what he, what he was to her. The king took off his signet ring, which you'll hear about in just a minute, which he had taken away from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to the evil scheme of Haman, the Agagite, and his plot, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. She arose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleases the king, and if I found favor before him, the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite he wrote to destroy the Jews who were all in the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther and him. They have hanged on the gallows, because he has stretched out his hand against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name, seal it with the king's signet ring, a decree which is written in the name of the king, sealed with the king's signet for what reason? So that it may never 
Now go back in again to Daniel. Look at verse 16. So this law of Medes and Persians, we keep hearing it in Daniel, keep hearing it, keep hearing it. Back to Esther, we now understand how that it never can be changed. Verse 16, then the king gave the orders, and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. Well, the king realizes there's nothing else to be done. And so he issues the order to have Daniel cast into the lion's den, which incidentally is actually more of a pit. The word Hebrew, or Hebrew word here is really more a pit they dug out on the side of a cave, right? Or, you know, side of a mountain. And dug that out, and then they would roll a big stone over it. So it's not like, you know, I know we see the paintings where he walks down the stairs, you know, and he's sitting there and the lions are staring at him in a beam of light, right? It's, he's really in a pit. There's probably not a lot of light there. Uh, but anyway, it makes for a great picture. But before they throw Daniel in, the king speaks and says, Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. What an interesting thing for a pagan king to say to Daniel. Your God, whom you constantly serve, he himself will deliver you. Notice the difference between what Darius says to Daniel and what Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel's three friends when they were about to be thrown into the fire. Do you remember that? In Daniel chapter 3, verse 15, Nebuchadnezzar said to Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, he said this, he said, Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigen, psaltery, bagpipe, all that music, fall down, worship the image that I've made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Notice that. What God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? But notice Darius and the God whom you serve, he himself statement was long before he was saved, and it's more consistent with what we would expect of a pagan king. Why would Darius say this? Maybe he spent that time when he was pacing back and forth trying to find a way to get out from underneath this decree that he had spoken. Maybe he did a little research. We really don't know. Perhaps he knew of Daniel's friend's miraculous rescue from the fiery furnace. I'm not sure, but regardless, it's far different farewell given by Darius to Daniel, especially for a pagan king. What I think here, my friends, once again, is this is a powerful testimony of the character of Daniel's life. He is such a man of character. I think the king really respects that Daniel is such a trusted man. And he's not the kind of man you want to throw to the lions. These other scoundrels, I, I don't think he'd have lost a wink of sleep. For Daniel, this seems to be, the king seems to be more upset about this than Daniel. I think Daniel's un, he's uncompromising in his faith in God. He lived that out every day. His Monday through Saturday faith is the same as his Sunday faith, if you will. And his faith is so genuine, so transparent, so consistent, that even unbelievers and pagans recognize how, how genuine it is. All of the, the same thing can be said of us, my friends. That our faith is so genuine, 
so transparent, so consistent, that even the pagans know there's something different about this. Verse 17, the stone was brought, laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. Notice that from Esther. With the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. And you notice, nothing can be changed. So the king rolls over a big stone, the king seals it with a signet ring, just as we heard about in Esther chapter 8, verse 18. The king retreats now, notice, back to his palace. He goes back to his palace, spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him, and his sleep fled from him. King retreats to his palace. He knows nothing else can be done. He's extremely distressed and upset by this. The text tells us no entertainment was brought in for the king that night. He's sleepless all night long. Isn't it amazing, again, that Daniel's the one being fed to the lions, and it's the king who's distressed? How is it, facing certain death, that Daniel can be so calm? He can be so at peace when there's such impending doom all around him? Well, the answer, my friends, is back in verses 10 and 11. And that's point number three, prayer. And we looked at this briefly last time we were together, but let's take a little deeper dive tonight. And there are several aspects of Daniel's prayer life that truly reflect this uncompromising character and faith of Daniel. And the first thing I want you to notice is that Daniel opens the windows when he prays. Look at verse 10 and 11 again. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house now in his roof chamber. He had the windows open towards Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had done, been doing previously. Then these men came by agreement, found Daniel making petition and supplication several things here. First of all, the first thing I want you to notice is that Daniel opens the windows when he prays. Now, why did he do this? Is it because he doesn't know about the new edict? Well, the text tells us he does, actually. He knows it was signed. It's far more likely that Daniel opened the windows because that's what he always did. If he had closed the windows this time, it might have meant that he was afraid or ashamed or maybe embarrassed about his prayer life. If he opened them this time, but he usually kept them closed, it might appear that he was intentionally tempting God to move on his behalf, regardless of what God's plan was. No, I believe Daniel opened the windows because it was consistent with the way he prayed every time. This is not some one-off thing. He does every day, seven days a week, three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. He goes up to his prayer chamber and opens those windows and faces Jerusalem and prays every day. He prayed three times a day. As a matter of fact, prayer was ingrained into the very fabric of his life. Martin Luther said, prayer is a strong wall and fortress of the church. It is a godly Christian weapon. James 
5.16 tells us the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Secondly, I want you to notice the position Daniel assumed when he prayed. Notice that he was kneeling. Now, the Bible does tell us there's a variety of different ways in which we can pray. We can do standing, we can do kneeling, arms raised, on the ground, sitting. But the overwhelming position of prayer in the Bible is kneeling over 40 times. What is it about the posture of kneeling when we pray? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, man is at his highest and greatest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. It's an act of humility, isn't it? Get on your knees and pray. Now, I might not be able to get up as quickly from kneeling as I once did. And perhaps someday I won't be able to get down on my knees and pray at all. But the Lord knows when that day will I want you to notice the frequency of Daniel's prayer life. Three times a day. What's so significant about that? It demonstrated Daniel's obedience and commitment to his prayer life. He does not let the things in life crowd out or take priority over his prayer life. He knows that prayer is essential to his walk. Jesus said, men ought to always pray and not lose heart. lastly, notice that he was facing Jerusalem. What's significant about that? Well, I won't take you here again. I think we looked at this last time, but 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 46 to 50. You can jot that down for yourself. When Solomon was dedicating the temple, he prayed, hey, you're going to be cast off into this foreign land, blah, 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 but just remember your God is faithful. Right? So pray. So they went three times a day from that point forward, prayed three times a day facing Jerusalem. When they got cast into exile, that, that's what they did. They just like, Lord, one of these days the Lord's going to rescue us because he said he would. And so it was an act of worship. He's not worshiping Jerusalem. He's worshiping the God of Jerusalem. And notice that it's also not just prayers and petitions and supplications. It's also praises of thankfulness. His prayers are specific, but they're not just about himself. They're not just about his physical needs, but about his spiritual needs and his testimony and his maturity and his perseverance. And remember, he's captive in a foreign land, and he's given praises and thanks to God. And despite being whisked away when he's 16, he's now close to 90, he's still thanking God for all that he has done and continues to do in Daniel's life. What? tremendous testimony what incredible faithfulness in his prayer life Daniel's a very important man in this country but he doesn't think he's so important or what he's doing is more important right? he's got all kinds of responsibilities all kinds of things that have to be done but prayer is the priority in Daniel's life he's a busy 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 guy still number one. He's never 
too embarrassed to pray either. Windows open, this is what I do. I face towards Jerusalem. I, I, I pray to God and I worship him. And I don't care how many injunctions you sign or how many edicts you put up there. This is what I do. This is what God has told me to do. This is what I will do. I don't care who's watching. Prayer is just simply an integral part of who he is as one who loves the Lord. Now, just imagine, my friends, what would happen if every one of us as believers had this same kind of consistency as passionate about prayer life as we are about other things in our life. How much more could we accomplish for Christ if we spent the time we spent on social media in prayer? How many of us have an alert on our phone that tells us how much time we spend on social media? Wouldn't it be great if we had an alert on our phone that told us how much time we spend in prayer? Daniel is so in tune with God because Daniel is so in touch with God. I don't want you to miss that. And remember, Daniel's not a young man anymore. Don't skip over the fact that Daniel, like Daniel, our greatest tests of faithfulness often come much later in life. We think they happen when we're younger, my friends, but your greater tests come in later in life when your health starts to fail, when loved ones start to depart. Your, your, your faith gets really tested. Those tests are far, far greater when you're older than they are when you're younger. And there's a real tendency to move away from our prayer life as we get older. We get but Daniel's life demonstrates that this is the exact opposite of what we're supposed to do. It's the exact opposite. We need him even more as we get older, not less. We need to spend more time with him, not less. You need his strength and his peace and his comfort and his rest more and more and more each passing day, not less. And perhaps if we did this instead of getting more critical as we get older, we could be more forgiving. Instead of looking for opportunities to point out, uh, you know, instead of looking for opportunities to point out each other's faults, we could be looking at each other and looking for opportunities to point out God's grace. Beloved, that's how I want to be. Isn't that how you want to be? That's how I want to be. I'm not there yet. It is still possible, but you, my friends, you have to begin sometime, and might I just suggest that today is as good as any other day to begin your daily journal time of prayer with the Lord. 
how mighty you could be used in the Lord if you were in tune with his will every day. And I pray that's not just your desire, but also your action plan tonight. You'd start tonight spending time in prayer with God. And you're going to wake up tomorrow morning and go, first thing I do is I want to go spend a little time with the Lord. Well, maybe call. And then the Lord. When you call on the Lord, there's never a busy signal. He's always available. Won't you call him tonight? I know he's anticipating your call because he loves to hear from his children. Beloved, the challenges we face in this life only increase with time. And your ability to navigate those challenges as you face them, they diminish. wants to physically or emotionally and even cognitively, that diminishes a little bit with time also. But God knows this. And he's already provided the solutions to these issues in his book of prayer. You just go spend time with the Lord and he'll sort it out for you. He'll make it very clear what you need to do next. What's the next step in your journey? You just need to go ask him. accomplish so much on our own, we tend to be very self-sufficient. We tend to treat God like, break this glass in case of emergency, and we just kind of put him to the side, and we say, I got this, God, I, I got it. I'll call you if I need you. But you know, when we get older, the Lord has a way of teaching us just how dependent we actually are on him. And he makes it daily of our dependence upon him for everything in our life and hopefully you realize that because you're talking to him every day every day we're spending time with him we are so inclined to let prayer get pushed back to the back burners of our life we're so inclined to treat prayer like in, in case of emergency break here Oh, if something goes bad, oh, okay, I'll pray. But Daniel fit this into the very fabric of his life. You couldn't say the word Daniel without thinking about the word prayer. That's how ingrained it is into his life. In Daniel's life, his life shows us that no matter what we face in life, prayer is the means by which we enter the throne room. It's the door that opens up that we walk in to the throne room of grace. It's where we find grace and receive mercy in our time of need. And your time of need is not just when the latest crisis hits. You know when your time of need is? One second ago. One second ago. Once, it's every day. We are very needy people. Daniel's about to face the biggest trial of his life. He's facing certain death. He's being thrown into a pit of lions, and yet he has the assurance that God will move according to his sovereign will, and he's completely at peace about it, and the king is freaking out. Think about that for just a second. 
How does he have that assurance? It's because he speaks to his heavenly father every day. How about you, my friends? Are you speaking with your heavenly father every day? I'll ask you again. Won't you call him today? I know he's anticipating your call. He loves to hear from his children. Let's go right now, shall we? stop. 